The spirited singing, the opportunity for prayer has certainly already been an excitement and a tremendous privilege that we've been able to enjoy. And if your nose is as mine, you already have a strong indication of what's awaiting us back there in just a bit. I'm hopeful that uh, you will be able to focus or concentrate a little bit longer on the matter of the lesson. In fact, the family suggested I ought to give some thought to abbreviating the lesson a little bit tonight. We'll see how that works out as time passes by us. You might have noticed already, or at least have given some thought, to what took place last Lord's Day evening. Because with the weather as it was then, I wasn't able to be here, and I appreciate very much the, the activities, the singing that took place, as well as I believe Brother Jonathan extended the invitation. But that did leave us at a point where it was this lesson that we were going to consider then. So I went ahead and chose to continue onward in the study of John the Baptist this evening. In fact, you'll notice part two of this perhaps should bring to our mind what we learned in part one because we'll build on that as we study some more episodes in the life of John the Baptist. He was, after all, a very central figure in the sacred text. We perhaps noted on that occasion these thoughts at least. We learned what a great figure he was, for the Lord said so. Among those born of women there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 11. But inasmuch as we had considered His greatness as the preparer for the Christ, as the one who in fact was the voice crying in the wilderness, a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 3, it does nonetheless bring us to, we really only looked then at the nature of His birth, the character of His coming. We tonight will look at more of His preaching message. What were some of the matters of greatest interest of greatest concern in the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. It will be the case tonight that as we consider some misunderstandings relative to his preaching, some very unfortunate misinterpretations of his preaching, we will be led to a dearer appreciation of who he was and the greatness of those messages. And so with that said, let's begin to look a little bit more further at the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. As we do that, the first element that must be set before us, and the one that was the central piece in the text that was read by Lucas a moment ago, from John chapter 3, verse 30, as John the Baptist was preaching then this very simple message, he must increase and I must decrease. Let's in fact build some initial thoughts around that basic text itself and appreciate without any misunderstanding the nature of what it was he centrally proclaimed. I began by asking you to notice that as we begin the gospel accounts in Mark 1 verse 5, we appreciate that quotation from Malachi 3 that this was, and John knew that he was, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one heralding the way and preparing the way for the coming Christ. With all of that stated in his own ministry, John knew very well then that he was the fulfiller of those matters. Listen to some of these passages descriptive of John. In John 1 verse 6, that opening chapter of the gospel according to John, we there read, There was a man sent from God. His name was John. His message, his character, his mission, his objective was in fact decreed in heaven. And as he came, it was no accident. It wasn't a happenstance. He came when the God of heaven so dictated. For when he came, remember, the Messiah was to shortly follow. Not only that, one can interestingly notice two verses later. We read this description of him. He was not that light 
but he came to bear witness of the light. As great as John was, he understood well himself that there was a greater that was to follow. He never tried to take the preeminence. He never tried to, in fact, take the glory for himself. That was reserved for the Christ. He, in fact, carried out his mission so dutifully, preaching with power, majesty, and might about the Christ, about his work, about his kingdom. In fact, in John 1, verse 23, John would even himself say that I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose the latchet of his shoes. He knew by way of comparison that he was so inferior to because he was not the Son of God as Jesus would be. And he was not the one who would die on the cross for the sins of the world like Jesus would. And he wasn't the one who was the head of the church like Jesus would be. And yet as John prepared the way, he nonetheless knew that his work was important. One final passage, Jesus speaking of John in John 5.35 said that he was a burning and shining light. That light would of course light the way for the Christ, lighting the way for the goodness and glory of his kingdom. It is with that in mind that the humility of John as a servant is so easily portrayed in verses like these. In Mark 1.7, Matthew 3.14 to begin that listing. John, as powerful and as great as his preaching was, when it had to do with Christ, he said things like this, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And when Jesus came to him to be baptized, did, it, did not he interject and say that I have need to be baptized of thee, and thou comest to me? John felt on that occasion with all the fullness of his being, that he was the one that needed really to be baptized of the Christ, not the other way around. And yet it was the Lord on that occasion that said, Suffer it to be so, for it fulfilleth, or that becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3, verses 14 to 17. It is with these thoughts in mind that we each can be impressed with John. With the greatness of his labor, it might have been a temptation to take some of the glory to himself to labor like Diotrephes did and strive to take the preeminence, but we have no record that he ever did such. He humbly, with simple humility, strove to preach and to proclaim the message of the Christ that would follow. In fact, one final passage, that very one that we read earlier, he must increase and I must decrease. It took a great deal of courage, no doubt, and a great deal of faith to proclaim that message. John knew that his influence must now begin to wane away because the Christ had now come. His greatness, his kingdom, and his mission would need to be in the ascendancy. And people would need to give heed to that message and not the preaching of John. One of the factors related to that that has often been a matter of some controversy has been the baptism administered by John the Baptist. We do know that John baptized in the Jordan River. And he did so, and many people came to him, Matthew 3, verse 6. But yet we also know that his baptism, the one that he administered, was not based on the fullness of the resurrection of Christ and the death and burial of Christ, because Christ had not, been, had not died at that time. And so the time would come when his baptism would be insufficient and inadequate inasmuch as the greater baptism, the one baptism of Ephesians 4, 5, was now reality. 
it is with thoughts like that in mind that you and I immediately come to an interesting lesson. It is the lesson of humility and simple servitude. There are, in fact, always a need in the kingdom of the, of the Christ for humble servants who are more than excited to use their skills and their talents, simply serving in the kingdom of God, not desirous of heaping the glory for themselves, not desirous of making their name great, but desirous of exalting the name of the Master, lifting high God's kingdom in His way, for that is what will lead to the exaltation of God and the glory that belongs to Him. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. That closing verse, or really that middle verse in James, the fourth chapter. Inasmuch as that lesson is set before us, might we now build a little bit more thoroughly upon the preaching of John himself? What were some of the messages that were so often found in John's preaching? What were some of the themes that he seemed to recollect and to set forth over and over again? Themes that in fact have some interesting application even for us today. As we begin to look at these themes, our first one is this. It was, from the earliest record of the New Testament, a central feature in the preaching of John, the subject of repentance. In Matthew 3, verse 2, John said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he urged repentance in the lives of those that came to him, those that had an interest in, in fact, heeding that which he taught. He demanded it. Not as though he did, but as the very one proclaiming God's message. One place in which that is so powerfully seen is a little bit later in that same chapter. We noted verse number 2 a moment ago, but if you look just six verses later to Matthew 3 verse 8, you notice on that occasion that large multitudes came to him from Judea, and they were all interested in his preaching. They, in fact, were desirous of being baptized by him, and yet it was on that occasion that he said, Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. You see, he even had the boldness and courageousness to, with regard to some of them, call that they were in fact a brood of vipers. Their heart was not in it. They were hypocrites. They were those who simply had a desire maybe to be baptized without knowing what it meant, without understanding the change in life that it demanded. He said, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. They needed to have a transformed life so that that baptism would in fact have a meaning and that it would emanate to the kind of life that God called them to live. As you give some thought to that matter of repentance, may we pause at this point to say, it was not a popular subject then. In Luke chapter 3, when in fact, again, John was preaching repentance and there were those who asked him questions, it's easy to tell that they were not entirely excited about some of the changes which John demanded of them. But isn't it true that repentance still is not a popular subject? It is still not one to which many will turn their attention with excitement and favor because it demands change. I want to do what I've always done and I don't want to change. I want to be right with God, no doubt, and I want to have Him be pleased with me, but I don't want to change. That's the singular message so often found in our world. Those to whom you and I speak, quite often though they read the verses, they know in fact and have heard what it says, they nonetheless are not interested 
in making a change to accept what it says. Amazingly, and also rather directly, John preached repentance, and may we be so quick as to suggest the Son of God who came preaching after John, he too also demands repentance. It was on that occasion in Luke the 13th chapter that Jesus said, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The Lord preached repentance and the necessity of it. Later we notice that it was a critical figure in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. When Paul in Acts chapter 17 preached there in the city of Athens to those individuals who were so learned of that day, wasn't it Paul who very directly said, The times of this ignorance got winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Repentance, it's demanded of us as well, isn't it? Just as surely as it was on that day of Pentecost, when it was to them that Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It is thus always important for you and for me to analyze our life honestly, openly, and straightforwardly. And if change is needed, if change is in order, then to have the courage and the determination to make steps toward that accomplishment. Because God does demand that we repent and to change if that change is in order and to live as we should. As you look at some of these verses that make discussion about repentance, let's look at the next subject that was so often a part of John's preaching ministry. It is this issue of the confession of sins. We noted it earlier, didn't we? That when these individuals came to John to be baptized, John didn't just immerse them and not ask anything of them. There was a critical issue concerning the confession of sins that was a part of John's requirement and his preaching with regard to them. In Matthew 3 verse 6, we easily find the unpopularity of this confession even then. But that does bring us to notice that that confession was a vital part of what was asked and what was required of them. But might we also say, how vital it is that it is still also required of us today. Confession. When an individual comes to realize what the Lord did for him or her, and when that individual thus in repentance makes that next step in obedience to the gospel, are we not taught in the New Testament that it's confession? Jesus demanded it in Matthew 5, or rather Matthew 10, And we notice in verses 32 and 33 of that chapter that you and I are in a position to where we must confess His name or else He will deny us. We see that emanated and in fact so clearly presented later in the New Testament as well. Confession. And listen to the way in which John presented it in 1 John 1 beginning in verse 8. He that saith, I have no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But rather in the next verse he says, If we are faithful and just to confess our sins, then He will forgive them. Confession, how important is it? It is a necessary part in order for them to be forgiven. Does that not indicate the need for a tender heart? It's so easy, isn't it, to pretend we have no sin. 
I'm good enough. I will cover over it, play like a hypocrite, and pretend that I have not sinned, that I'm better than others. When the biblical calling of us is to recognize that you and I are not perfect and that we are those who may need to often confess those sins, certainly to God, but perhaps to others, openly making note of the fact that I was wrong. I made a mistake and I beg your forgiveness. And when you and I have that kind of attitude toward the confession of sin, we can begin to see the kind of change that that would have wrought in the lives of those to whom John preached. And of course, the kind of changes that it can invoke in the lives of us today. Look again at some of the matters discussed in terms of the book of Acts. The confession of sins. We notice that when Simon the sorcerer in Acts the 8th chapter when he was, of course, guilty of doing that which he ought not do, trying to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. It was Peter who directly told him that he was in the bond of iniquity and the gall that went along with it. And he, in recognizing that error, besought Peter to pray on his behalf. Isn't it interesting that when we reflect upon that today, there still is that need, and you and I witness it from time to time, an individual will come forward and before all of us make an open confession of error. We, of course, do not look down upon an individual who has encouraged done that. We rather in love are excited to pray for them and we do so desirous that God would forgive them, that they would understand that they no longer are held guilty for sins past done, but rather that they are ready to start afresh and anew in their service and in their walk with the God of heaven. To think of confession that way sometimes helps us see that perhaps we look upon it wrongly. That's the reason some perhaps feel as if, well, I'm not going to go forward and make a confession of these matters. When in reality, maybe we should understand that others are excited that things are new and that a new beginning is able to be before you. And that that confession is a part of what we read of in the New Testament. That confession of sins, as you'll notice in James 5.16, is still something that is so powerfully highlighted. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There is then something to be said in the process of healing that requires the matter of confession. So when you and I are found in the error, may we with haste desire not only to repent of it, but to confess it to the degree that it needs to be done so that that healing process can begin and so that it can quickly make its way toward a full closure and restitution of that matter. But beyond these two, what else did John preach? He also preached, of course, the matter of baptism. We see that because so many came to him. And they came with a desire because that is the subject of which they had heard and it is what they recognized John is doing. May we pause at this point to notice what is the surname or what is the descriptive name that describes John? The Baptist. The act for which John was most often known was baptism. Just as today, Bill may be known as a farmer, Paul may be known as a pharmacist, Henry may be known as a carpenter. John was known as a Baptist. He was known for the activity of baptizing others. He's John the Baptist, John the Immerser. 
And that, of course, distinguishes him from John the Apostle or the other John of which we read in the New Testament. What could be said then of this gentleman, the Baptist? Certainly in regard to his preaching of baptism, it seems as if it wasn't entirely popular then, but it became so in that area due in part to his preaching ministry. But are you and I not aware that the subject is still not terribly popular today? There still are so many who would seemingly so strongly cling to the preaching of the gospel except baptism. They have no interest in it and they will in fact militantly refuse it. Odd, isn't it? So openly accepting of almost everything the New Testament would teach except the baptism in water for the remission of sins. When we give thought to that, we only could remark about how often that was a requirement in the New Testament. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Peter preached, Repent and be baptized. Acts 2, 38. Wasn't it Peter who later in 1 Peter 3.21 would say, The like figure whereunto even baptism does also, now, does also now save us. Those could be amplified many more times. But the point is clear, isn't it? Baptism, just as was the case of repentance and just as was the case of confession, is a vital and essential part of this era and it was a part of John's ministry as well. You'll notice that one of the last verses or one of the verses in that set was Luke 7, verses 29 and 30. The rather powerful teaching of those two verses is this, that God expected and demanded of those Jews in that era beneath the preaching of John that they submit to water baptism. And might we use that to note that today it is the will and it is the plan of God that all those who would be pleasing to Him must submit to water baptism. The New Testament leaves no alternative because it is in that that we in fact have our sins forgiven. It is in that act that we in fact contact the precious blood of Christ and it is in that act that in culmination we are added to the church. And so it is that we perhaps should look at another one of the elements of John's preaching ministry, the subject of the kingdom. Oh, how bold John was to preach, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's preaching in terms of repentance wasn't idle, but rather it was to the intent and in view of the coming kingdom. The kingdom was at hand. Let's be very clear to notice that he said the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom wasn't in existence when John said that. It was at hand. It was near into the future. But it was not yet a reality. That kingdom, of course, later would become a reality. And the Lord fashioned and very directly affirmed in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it was to Peter in the next verse he said, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. John, you see, preached about the coming kingdom. And he urged individuals to appreciate the greatness of that kingdom and that they would make preparation to receive it and be ready for it. Dear friend, the kingdom is now reality. With all of its glory and all of its greatness, the kingdom is here and you and I are blessed to be part of it. 
We are members in it, for it is the church of our Lord, the church of Christ spoken of in Romans 16, 16. If it's true that John's preaching was hailed as then being that great, and one of the reasons was its relation to the kingdom, how much greater should you and I appreciate our blessing to be to be a part of this kingdom? In fact, it is at this point so appropriate to make note of the way Matthew eleven eleven ends. We began our lesson with this passage, but we didn't complete the verse. Let's complete it now. Jesus on that occasion said, Among those born of women there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. The least one in the kingdom, in the church, in the blessed body of Christ, has greater opportunity and greater blessing than John ever appreciated. Why? How could that be? Because, friend, John died before the kingdom was ever established. His head was stricken from his body in Matthew, the 14th chapter, long before Jesus was crucified, long before he shed his blood, and long before the precious church was established upon that blood, Acts 20, 28. And so you and I, as members of that body, are vouchsafed far greater blessings than John ever had the privilege of enjoying. Forgiveness of sin the great hope of heaven held out to us through the agency of Christ, the character of all that goes with the spiritual blessings of prayer, and openness with regard to our association to God. John preached to the kingdom, and may we still lift it high today in our preaching, despite the fact that in the mind of some it still is not important, and sometimes it isn't even popular. But as we move to the next element in our study as well tonight, you'll notice that Two more items and our lesson will be finished. The fifth thing that was a part of John's preaching ministry that you and I can note this evening is this. Not only did John make mention of water baptism, as we noted earlier, he also had things to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it might be safe to say that there are few subjects today that are more controversial and more misunderstood and more problematic in the mind of many than is the subject of Holy Spirit baptism. There are so many in our day today who openly believe that you must be baptized with the Holy Spirit or else you are not right and cannot be right with God. Perhaps you've had discussions with some who will openly affirm that they have been so baptized and they demanded of all those pleasing before God. To put the matter bluntly, they not only are confused, they are demanding what is impossible today. There are only two occurrences in all the sacred scriptures in which Holy Spirit baptism is under discussion in terms of actual occurrence. One of them is in the second chapter of Acts, the other in the tenth chapter of Acts. And beyond that, no other occurrences were ever listed, nor were any others ever promised. Under the discussions of the book of Acts, one can then rightly conclude that one cannot be so baptized in that way today. In Acts, the second chapter, who was it that was the recipient of that baptism? The pronouns refer directly to the apostles and no one else. The 120 therein so gathered were not baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was the apostles and they alone. Because when that Holy Spirit descended upon them, they had the ability to speak in these tongues and languages that they had not studied or learned. It is thus the case that a similar matter occurred in Acts the 10th chapter, but no others. Today, you and I cannot be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
because that baptism fulfilled its purpose and it no longer is extant in the lives of human beings. Its eventuality has now passed. In the words of Paul, today there is one baptism. Ephesians 4 verse 5, only one. It is baptism in water for the remission of sins. It is not Holy Spirit baptism. And thus, in light of that, quickly notice these passages in Acts 10, verses 44 and 45. When the household of Cornelius heard the preaching of Peter on that occasion, it was they who, of course, had a like thing occurring to them as had occurred with regard to the day of Pentecost. Because when asked about it, that's what Peter affirmed. The same thing happened to them as happened to us at the beginning. And because of that, he said, Can we then withhold from them baptism? And then they were baptized in water for the remission of their sins. We understand that that miraculous occurrence is not that which occurs today because that age of miracles has now passed. John preached, though, of this baptism, and he urged his followers to understand the day would come when Christ would administer that Holy Spirit baptism. And that he did in the 10th and 2nd chapters of the book of Acts. The sixth and final matter that seemingly was so often a part of John's preaching ministry was the judgment. The judgment. John held before those who were his auditors in Matthew 3, verses 9 through 11, the reality of a judgment. In the same context in which he preached about Holy Spirit baptism, he said there's coming one who will in fact administer a baptism of fire. Fire. Can we not already see that baptism was a frequent part of John's preaching ministry? He preached of water baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism in fire. It's this third one that's the topic of our discussion at this moment. What is that baptism of fire to which John referred? You'll notice that he said it would be administered by Jesus. He said he could not administer it. And in fact, in his statement, as he spoke of it in future tense, it points directly to the reality at the end of time when there will be the jurisdiction of one who has the authority and power to cast into hell as well as to allow entrance into heaven. It is that event that's described as a baptism of fire. May we be so quick as to suggest no one in his right mind surely would want to participate in the baptism of fire because it means an eternity lost from God. It means an eternity separated from the Master. It means an eternity in outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, that is the baptism of fire. As John preached of it with such courageousness, today that still is an unpopular subject for some. They don't want the cloud of judgment for an eternity before them. They don't want to think about that. I want to live it up here and now. As was spoken of in Luke the 12th chapter, they in essence would like to eat, drink, and be merry. For today we live and tomorrow we die. But you see, they need to appreciate the fact that death is not the end and that following that occasion of death, one will appear before the judgment bar of God. We do read that, do we not, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10. For there it is true that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. These six things we've looked at tonight were a very critical part of John's preaching ministry. 
And it is amazing, isn't it, how similar they sound to the preaching that would, of course, be the case under the nature of the Christ. To summarize that lesson, I've listed all the things we've discussed. We've noted everything, of course, from John's humility all the way to the matter of repentance, confession, baptism in water, the kingdom, judgment, and also the greatness associated with the work. Tonight, what about an honest reflection of your life and mine? If John were able to stand here before us, there's no doubt what he would tell us. He would preach a very similar message to what he preached then. He would point all the glory to the Christ, and he would urge us to, to in fact, to repent, to confess, to be baptized. He would urge us to understand about the nature of Holy Spirit baptism, but that it does not occur today. He would urge us to know the greatness of the kingdom and to appreciate the judgment yet to come. Tonight, in the examination of your life, may we close the lesson with 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Are you in the faith tonight? John would urge you to be. He would urge me to be. If you find yourself not in the faith at this moment, heed the wording and the warnings issued by John. And if we could be of assistance to you tonight in taking your confession, in assisting you in baptism, in perhaps aiding you in your greater understanding of the Holy Scriptures, why not let us do that? And if we could be of assistance in either of those ways tonight, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?